Good morning, church family. <laughs> um, I'm going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. May God enable us to understand this, his holy word. I prayed about this earlier. I kind of alluded to this earlier. Um, but I think human relationships can be very difficult things. Anybody agree with that? Yeah, I see some. Okay. I think they're difficult. I also think they're a tremendous source of joy and encouragement. So they're not just difficult, but they're not less than difficult because they bring challenges into our lives. So you know, maybe you found yourself thinking, I've certainly thought this, Lord, if you could just make all these other people go away, <laughs> you and I could have the most wonderful relationship. <laughs> you ever thought that? I, I love to go hiking in the woods, and, and I've, I go on retreats in the woods, like to be in the woods. The woods are great. And, and I have noticed that in my own mind, I become the most amazing husband and father and friend when I am out in the woods all by myself. I think that one of the reasons we run into trouble in our relationships is, is this tendency we have to separate our relationship with God from all our other relationships. So think about this with me. If, if I'm the son, not like son of a father, but son as in solar system, if I'm the son and my relationship with my wife is kind of orbiting over here, with my kids over here, and you know, God's kind of over there, maybe near Neptune, and then all of you are kind of in orbit right in my face. I'm at the center of the relational universe. And when that's the case, I will not see any connections between who God is, what God is doing, and all my other relationships, right? Because God's kind of over here by Neptune, and all my other relationships are over here, and I'm at the center. And when I'm at the center of my relational universe, not only do I not see those connections between God and my other relationships, questions like these determine the way I relate to other people. Namely, how have they treated me? What do I feel like saying to them? Or what do I think they deserve right now? But when we recognize God as the functional center of our relational universe, when we realize he's the son at the center of it all, we start making connections between who God is, what God is doing, and all our other relationships because they're orbiting around him. 
So we start asking questions like these. What is Jesus doing in the world? What is Jesus doing in that other person? What is Jesus doing in me? And I'd argue, friends, that that these short verses in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 15, they are all about keeping God at the center of our relational universe. They're not just random spin-off fragments from the Apostle Paul. There's a theme. This is what it looks like when God is at the center of our relational universe and we're connecting the way he relates to us with the way we relate to other people. Does that make sense? That's the theme here. And I think that's the case because the the whole second part of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5 are focused on what God is doing in the world. And in particular, what God will do on the day Jesus returns to make everything wrong, right. And the Apostle Paul, if you look back up into chapter 5, he concludes this whole section with a strong word of encouragement in verse 9 to Christians, to those who have turned away from living for themselves and turned toward trusting and obeying Jesus. What does he say? For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. What does that tell you about God, Christian? Which should tell you that he's a sovereign God, right? He's ordained your destiny. He's also what? A loving God. He died for you. He died for you so that when Jesus returns, you won't be condemned on account of your sin. Through faith in Christ, you'll be transformed into the perfect image of God. You will, when Jesus comes back, not just pass through some sort of limbo line of judgment off into another world of eternity with angels and harps. You will become truly and fully human. Think about that. Life as it was meant to be. You as you were created to be with God. That's your destiny, friend, if you're in Christ. Which means that the most important thing about you right now is not what you are doing for yourself in your little life right now, but what Jesus has done for you, Jesus is doing for you, and Jesus will do for you. So even if you're surrounded by relational difficulty, hear this, the grand story of your life, Christian, is not, oh, look, there goes Joe meandering through a relational wasteland. No, no, you're walking the path to salvation. Jesus is with you. Jesus is for you. Jesus will bring you home. And if if you have that hope, if you cherish that hope, if you believe, as Paul says in verse 10, that all your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ share the same destiny, destined for salvation, that's not just going to affect your relationship with God. That, that hope of salvation will change the way you relate to everyone around you, including people who hurt you. So here's the main point. For all of you who have like seven-minute attention spans, I'm going to give this to you early before you lose me, okay? Here's the main point. Listen, keeping the gospel, the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ in view, keeps 
God at the center of your relational universe, which will affect all your other relationships. And that's what Paul's saying in verse 11. Look there. Therefore, given the hope of salvation we have, all Jesus is doing in us and his, as his people, all he will do in us, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Translation, the hope of salvation God has given us in Jesus Christ doesn't exist in a book on the pastor's library shelf. It is connected to absolutely every other relationship in your life, Christian. That's what the therefore is for. And verses 12 to 15 fill that out. If you're hearing me and you're thinking, okay, so what does that look like? Good question. Paul answers that in verses 12 to 15 by kind of illustrating this point with three groups of people. Our attitude toward church leaders, our attitude toward fellow members, and our attitude toward our enemies. So the groups are different, but the main point is the same. Our hope of salvation compels us to build one another up. That's the big idea. So let's look at these illustrations. How do we do that? How do we build each other up? First, building one another up means we honor our leaders. Honor our leaders. I'm, I'm drawing here from verses 12 to 13. And by the way, let me say this. There are pastors who hesitate to preach texts like this because it can seem self-serving. I'm not going to hesitate <laughs> because this isn't about what I think, right? This is about what God says. So I, with all of you, we all need to listen to what God says. So let's go for this, okay? We, we live in a culture that has a real issue with authority. A real issue. Now, if you read church history, that's actually not that new. But it's really visible right now. So on the one hand, kind of best case scenario, we're suspicious. Worst case scenario, we're insubordinate. And sadly, both of those attitudes often carry over into the church. And into our relationships with the spiritual leaders God has placed in our lives. And when they do, we suffer, our church suffers, and our witness to the world suffers. And God has something better for us, friends. Because he knows, and I'm convinced, that, that one of the single most important factors affecting the long-term health and fruitfulness of a church, Kingsway included, is what? It's the strength of the relationship between the members of the church and those members whom God has set in as leaders in the church. You, you want to get a sense for whether the future looks good for a particular congregation? Take the temperature of the relationship between the members of the church and the leaders of that church. That's massively significant. So important. And when it comes to the way we relate to our spiritual leaders, Paul gives us two commands. Very simple. Look at verse 12. We are to respect them. And verse 13, we are to esteem them. So, obvious question, exactly who are these spiritual leaders that we're supposed to respect and esteem? Well, Paul identifies them in verse 12 with three phrases. They are first, those who what? Who labor among you. I want you to notice the local emphasis there. They're not spiritual leaders on TV. 
They're not super gifted Christian rock stars who are beaming in their supernatural insights via podcasts to your living room. They are where? Among you. They're among you. They're in your midst. They're close to you. And they know you. And you know them. The, the, the Lord does not command us to respect and esteem spiritual leaders in general. Why not? Because any old Joe or Susie can stand up and say, I'm a prophet. <laughs> I'm a prophetess. I got an insight with God. We got a thing. Listen to me. Anybody can say that, but the Lord doesn't command us to respect and esteem spiritual leaders in general. What does he say? Respect and esteem the particular elders that he has called to pastor us as members of a particular local church. Now, how do we know that's what Paul's talking about? Okay, how do we know that those who labor among you refers primarily to the elders or pastors of a church? Well, here's why. Because Paul says those who labor among you are also what? Are over you in the Lord. Now, you need to know something. That word Paul uses here, over you, is not a description of raw power. It's not. It combines the ideas of ruling and leading and protecting for someone else. Okay, it's also the same word Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, to describe a qualified elder who is managing his household well. Exact same word. And it's the same word Paul uses in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to describe elders who rule well. Same word. Especially those who labor, same word, in preaching and teaching. So what's the point? Spiritual authority can be horribly misused. Horribly misused. But it's fundamentally a good thing because it's an expression of the authority of God himself. Please hear that. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Bottom line, the chief shepherd, King Jesus, cares for the church as the Lord of the church by ordaining qualified under shepherds, pastor elders, to lead, feed, guide, and protect the church with the authority that King Jesus, the chief shepherd, has entrusted to them. His, his care for us, in other words, on this path of salvation we're walking, I was talking about earlier, it's not impersonal. It has a face. It's expressed through your pastor's. And that's why, among many reasons, just attending church on Sundays is really dangerous. Let me explain this, okay? Covenant membership matters because it's only when we join in formal commitment a particular local church 
that we place ourselves under the spiritual care and protection and authority of a particular body of elders. If you just attend on Sunday, nobody is over you in the Lord. You're on your own. And that's a spiritually perilous place to be from. You're essentially saying to God, basically, I don't need the means of grace you think I need. Jesus, when you looked at Jerusalem and your heart broke because you saw sheep without a shepherd, you didn't see me because I don't need a shepherd. You do, friend. You do. You need a pastor. You need a shepherd to, to admonish you with the word of God and to equip and mobilize all your brothers and sisters around you in the church to affirm and oversee your profession of faith. So, how should you relate to your pastors? Once you've joined a church, your pastors, your elders, well, assuming they are biblically qualified, hear that, you should what? Respect them and esteem them. And that means at a minimum, listening and leaning forward to follow their spiritual leadership. Okay, honoring them in your heart and mind. Not because you like everything they're doing or agree with everything they say, but because you know the Lord has placed them in your life for his glory and your good. Paul isn't after a cold submission here. There, there's not a hint of, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir. <laughs> no, no, there's no begrudging servitude. What, what is the command? What's the instruction? Loving support and deep appreciation for the work they're doing to care for your soul. Primarily through the preaching of God's word and prayer. Now, please hear this, because I think a lot of times churches get off the rails with this, okay? Esteeming your pastors very highly does not mean putting them on a spiritual pedestal. Esteeming your pastors highly does not mean putting them on a spiritual pedestal. Don't do that. What happens when you do that? Well, far too many professing Christians do that. And I've noticed that when their spiritual pope of choice inevitably stumbles or falls proving that all along they were simply a normal human being. They stopped going to church. Or, and or, they just entirely give up on the faith. You know what that's acting like? That's acting like Paul actually said in chapter 5 verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our pastor's. You realize that? What, what is he saying? God isn't destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't esteem your pastor because you think he's perfect. He's not. Esteem your pastor because Jesus has charged him, charged me to care for your soul and, and the savior that that pastor represents imperfectly is perfect. In all his ways, even when your spiritual pope, 
publicly bites the dust. If you stop following Jesus because I stopped following Jesus, you weren't following Jesus. Pray for me that I don't stop following Jesus. (laughs) But if I do, and I start a website, and I suddenly have a new interest in social media, (laughs) which I'm horrible at right now, don't you stop following Jesus. Hebrews 13, 17 says it well. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. for that would be of no advantage to you. And I would be remiss, brothers and sisters, if if I didn't just stop right now. And on behalf of our eldership, thank you for the way you respect and honor us. In in so many ways, you, you make this job a joy for me. It is very hard. It's very tiring. I know I'm not alone in that. But it is a joy. I love being your shepherd. And so when I preach these verses, I don't primarily preach them to correct you, but like Paul said to the Thessalonians back in verse 11, do it more and more and more and more. What does he say? Just as you are doing. You're like the Thessalonians, okay? You're doing this for the good of your own soul, for the future health of our church, and for the success of our gospel witness in the world. Keep on doing it. Keep on honoring your leadership. You want pastors who enjoy being your pastor. You don't want a pastor who groans because of you. Who sees your name come up on a cell phone. It's like, I suddenly need food. (laughs) No, no. And if you want to know the best way to do that, look at verse 13. Be at peace. Among yourselves. <laughs> you just gotta love Paul. I mean, you, you can almost just write in that, like hear him from afar. <sighs> Be at peace. Be at peace. Why? Because there's nothing like conflict to rob the joy of ministry for a pastor. I should also say, having lived through the last decade or so, that there's nothing like conflict, if we're willing to humbly trust God, to teach us that God is faithful. It's the only reason I'm still here. But live at peace among yourself. Be a peacemaker. Don't come to the pastor elders God's placed over you and ask them to make your life rosy. I can't fix your spouse. I can't fix your kids. Jesus can, and he can fix you and me too. So let's live at peace. Be a peacemaker, especially in your relationship with your fellow brothers and sisters. We, we build each other up on this road of salvation by honoring our leaders. Second, by caring for our fellow believers. Speaking of being a peacemaker, look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, do not preach a second sermon right now, Matthew. Oh my goodness. I've been waiting for this for the whole series. Because, 
there is a tremendous diversity to the spiritual maladies that assail us as Christians. Tremendous diversity, okay? To the challenges God's people face on the path to salvation. Our struggles, in other words, are not identical. So in the Thessalonian context, the, the idol seemed to have been church members who weren't interested in working. They just wanted to sponge off the people around them. Hey, you got any, got any change? I need some, you know. Never worked, okay? But the underlying principle of idleness isn't limited to earning a paycheck. We, we become idle anytime we are reluctant or unwilling to do what King Jesus has told us to do. That's the idol. Some of us grow faint-hearted. You know what God requires of you as a student, a friend, an employee, a parent, a spouse. And unlike the idol, you've done it for a long time. You've actually done it. You're not idle. You've been faithful. So, so what's going on now? Well, you're tired. You're dog tired. You've been doing the right thing, but you are so tuckered out of doing it. You're faint hearted. Your will to endure is on its last leg. Some of us grow weak. Could be a physical illness, could be a chronic disability, it could be a, a spiritual weakness, like a besetting sin that just, just keeps coming in and knocking you down. I don't think most of us have to think long to identify at least one area of life where we wish we were more like Jesus. And we can feel stuck, we can feel discouraged, we, we can see no way out of the trouble around us or within us, weak. But we don't all struggle this is Paul's point, with the same challenges on the path of salvation. So the idle are not doing what is right. The faint-hearted are tired of doing what is right. And the weak feel utterly incapable of doing what's right. Different people. And to complicate matters even further, think about this. We can be idle in one area of life. You, you can't, I can't faint-hearted in a second area, and weak in a third. Same person. Or, <laughs> this keeps getting more messy, we can be idle, faint-hearted, and weak in the same area of life, all at the same time, depending on which angle you look at the situation. To which I say, praise God, brothers and sisters. Praise God that the diversity of his grace exceeds the diversity of our troubles. Praise God for that. I don't, in general, love clothing shopping, but I especially don't like shopping for hats. For hats. And the reason is that I have a really big head. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. It's my ears. <laughs> you should see my feet. But you know what I, why I hate hat shopping? Because inevitably when I go up to the rack and I pull one out and I, where's the tag? And I look, what do I read? One size fits all. I'm getting a lot of helpful kind of groans from a lot of the ladies in the room right now, which I appreciate. Thank you for your sympathy. Um, that's a fat marketing lie for which I sh- we should sue somebody. You know? <laughs> Nonsense. Well, I mean, my experience, it's like one size fits no one. One size fits all. Aren't you grateful God doesn't care for us like that? 
the diversity of his graces in Christ Jesus, the manifold, multifaceted splendor, perfectly meet the manifold diversity of our troubles. Psalm 94, 19 says it so well. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Got many cares? The Lord has many consolations for you. And there's nothing generic about them. He meets us with specific mercies for specific troubles. So, just to illustrate this for a moment, consider a couple examples of how Jesus cares for his people in the book of Revelation. Okay? Revelation 2.5, Jesus admonishes the idol. What's that sound like? You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Flip over the next chapter, Revelation 3, verse 8. Jesus encourages the faint-hearted. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. And back in chapter 2, verse 9, he too helps the weak. Listen, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't, don't fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Different mercies for different troubles. And, and Jesus, Paul's point here, verse 14, gives us the privilege of following his example, of joining in in the work God is doing by building each other up on the road to salvation. In other words, Jesus admonishes you, Christian, to join him in admonishing the idle, in encouraging the faint-hearted, and in helping the weak. And I think we need to avoid two dangers here. Okay? First is the danger of assumption. So we tend to arrogantly assume, do we not, that we know the person lying next to us in bed. We're sitting across from us at the table, or we're listening on the other end of the phone, or reading our latest email. We, we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. We need to do the hard work of, of asking good questions of not assuming we actually know the person we're talking to and of bringing our friend or spouse before the Lord in prayer to get a, try to get a sense for the main thing Jesus is doing in their life before we open up our fat mouth and charge ahead with our personal agenda <laughs> or start typing. So, for example, idleness in one area may be the thing that annoys you the most about that person. Idleness. So when you see them, you walk in locked and loaded for a little or not so little word of admonishment. They may very well be idle friend. But you know what? They could also be faint-hearted. And it could be their faint-heartedness 
that King Jesus actually wants to work on first. What he cares the most about right now and wants you to care the most about right now. So don't assume you actually know the person you're talking to. And don't assume that your change agenda for their life reflects God's priorities. First danger, assumption. Second danger, selfishness. Big dangers here, okay? (laughs) Have you ever heard someone say, I'm just one of those people who says it like it is. I'm a truth speaker. That's my spiritual gift. Sanctify our sin. Gotta love that. You're, You're like Arnold Schwarzenegger in an action film. No matter what is in front of you, the appropriate response is what? (laughs) My apologies for spitting on you, Karn. (laughs) Collateral damage? What's that? Just the way God made me. Or maybe you've heard someone say or yourself say, you know, I just don't like confronting people. It's too messy. I'd rather just, you know, I just like to love on people. Trusting that in due time, God will help them change. Will you join me on the road of peace? What's present in both of those scenarios, friends? Selfishness. Selfishness. Acting like everyone is idle or everyone is faint-hearted is selfish because we're not starting with what the person in front of us actually needs. We're starting with what's comfortable for us. And we're frankly unwilling to do anything that doesn't just come naturally. And in either scenario, people get hurt. People get hurt. You admonish a faint-hearted person as if they're idle. And you have misrepresented God and done spiritual damage in their life. You encourage an idle person as if they are faint-hearted. You misrepresent God and you create spiritual damage in their life. Notice notice Paul doesn't say, we urge some of you to admonish the idol, the Schwarzenegger types. Others of you to encourage the faint-hearted and a third group who feels particularly gifted to help the weak. No, what does he say? Brothers, sisters, All of y'all, admonish the idol. All of y'all, encourage the faint-hearted. All of y'all, help the weak. All of you all, none of us get a pass on doing the hard work of actually getting to know the person we're talking to or typing to or discussing something with over the phone, bringing them to King Jesus, and then with the help of the Spirit, listening to the Lord, seeking to bring a specific mercy for their specific trouble. We're all called to do that, friends. All of us. And I think this phrase in verse 14, the final phrase, 
It's probably the hardest of the bunch. I left it out toward the end, so wouldn't be too convicted. <laughs> be patient with them all. Oh, it's like, Lord, did you have to say that? Is that, is that really the standard? Why does the Lord say, be patient, no matter whether we're admonishing, encouraging, or helping? Well, I hope it's obvious. He commands us to be patient, one, because few people change quickly. What do we tend to do? Myself included. Two steps forward, one step back. Three steps forward, five steps back. You know, That's more what it's like. We don't change quickly. And we also need patience because none of us helps perfectly and none of us receives help perfectly. Listen, you will sin against the person you are trying to help. And they will sin against you. And for that too, we need what? As my little toddler says, patience. We need patience. Let me give you an example. I have heard Christians go on and on and on sometimes about all the terribly hurtful and insensitive things people have said to them in the name of trying to admonish, encourage, or help them. And at the end of their tirade, either online or in person, I find myself thinking, I don't say this, but I think this, Lord, I sure hope I never have to care for them. Because I feel like there are more ways to fail than succeed. That, that's an offense waiting to happen. It, helping them would be like trying to disentangle a bomb blindfolded. Don't call July and set up an appointment with me. <laughs> Friend, don't be that kind of person. Don't turn 1 Thessalonians 5.14 into a hammer that you use to beat up anyone who tries to help you. You know? Sounds like this. What? What? Are you acting as if I'm idle? Don't you know I am faint-hearted? Like, hello, can I have some encouragement over here? How about starting with a hug? Why are you rebuking me? Don't you know I'm weak? Friend, to, to the degree that's your experience, and you have been genuinely hurt by another Christian who was trying to serve you, please don't hear me making light of that real pain or hurt. That's why I preach the first point first. But on the other side, do not so lord over, 1 Timothy 5.14, over the believers around you, that unless everybody else just magically gets you perfectly, better than you know yourselves, no entrance to care for me. Prove you know me first. No touch. Don't be that person. Don't, and, I should say this, don't be so afraid of getting it wrong on the giving side or misidentifying someone, you know? <sighs> okay, what did Master Matthew say? Any, meeny, miny, mo, Weak, faint-hearted. What was the other one? <laughs> you know? Ah, no, don't be so afraid of misidentifying someone that you functionally count yourself out of ever being used by God in your weakness to actually care for a fellow believer. 
God doesn't just use Christians with counseling degrees. He's commissioned all of us. If you are on the path of salvation, look at verse 11, because that's your mission, Christian. Encourage one another and build one another up. He's, He's destined the brothers and sisters around you for salvation, and he invites you to join in the work that he is doing in their life. Don't give yourself a pass. Consider it a privilege to be used by King Jesus to do his work that he will complete on the day he returns. Build one another up means caring for our fellow believers. We'll end with this, lest I get too worked up. Verse 15, do good to your enemies. Do good to your enemies. I think this is probably the most difficult relationship of the bunch. We've talked about the way we relate to leaders, the way we relate to our fellow brothers and sisters, because a curious thing happens to most people who experience genuine evil at the hands of another person. Because that's real, okay? We are filled with a sudden desire to what? To repay them. To repay them. To make them suffer in proportion to the suffering they caused. Because it's got to be matchy-matchy. So, why does Paul tell us to do the opposite? Look at verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What's up with that? Why do that? I don't like that. Well, plenty of secular people would say, well, because it's the right thing to do. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Always seek to do good because it's the right thing to do. That the cycle of hate has to end somewhere. So, end the cycle. To which I would simply say, why? Why? Why why is that right? Why is it right? Because if you embrace a secular worldview, if you believe human beings are nothing more than the product of an evolutionary cycle built on the survival of the fittest, on what basis, on what moral foundation do you insist that we should not repay evil with evil? Make sense? Well, Christianity has a better answer. It actually has an answer for that. Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So, we should not repay evil for evil because, moral foundation, God says avenging the wrong done to us is his job, not our job. His job, not your job. And he promises to not let a single act of evil go unpunished. A single act. Think about that. How can he say that? Because either the evildoer dies for their sin or Jesus dies for their sin. Either way, justice is always satisfied. Justice prevails. The only people, in other words, that are completely and totally free from vindicating themselves are the people who cling to the hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. Because it's only those people who know Jesus is coming back. 
to right every wrong, which, which frees them, frees us from having to vindicate ourselves here and now. But I can hear the voice in our head, right? But what if God doesn't punish them the way I want him to? What if he gives them grace? They haven't done anything to deserve mercy. Door of you, friend. That's why it's called mercy. Deserving mercy is a contradiction in terms. You don't deserve mercy. And I think Gordon Fee puts his finger on the real issue. Listen. The real difficulty most of God's people have with this admonition is that God may not give such people what they deserve. (laughs) Right? But may show them the same kind of mercy that he showed to themselves. Or as Paul says in Romans 5.8, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And so doing good to our enemies, loving those who hurt us, is one of the most important ways we demonstrate that we actually understand the gospel and that we get that we're walking the path of salvation as genuine sons and daughters. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 43? You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be, that's pretty strong, sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So let me conclude this point with two brief words of application, okay? The first has to do with our expectations, the second with our actions. First, notice in verse 15, please look there. You have a Bible open. How the command to do good to one another, instead of doing evil, implies that even people who are part of the church will sin against you. Do you catch that? Don't expect more of your fellow church member than God tells you to expect. We're all still struggling with sin. They too will hurt you. They too may commit evil against you and treat you like an enemy. Watch your expectations. Second, watch your actions. Notice the Lord's standard here in verse 15 is not limited to not repaying evil for evil. (laughs) We play these games sometimes, don't we? We, we say things like, well, I'm actually not going to repay them, but I'm certainly not going to pursue relationship with them. I'm just going to play Switzerland, my favorite country in the world. I'm just going to go neutral. I won't, I won't do anything bad, but I'm not going to do anything particularly good. I'm just going to wax eloquent about how bad the people that do bad are. Friend, praise God he didn't adopt that kind of loveless attitude toward you. 
Praise God for that, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't give you the silent treatment. He moved toward you in sacrificial love and affection. He he secured our greatest and highest good, satisfaction in Christ by giving us nothing less than himself. And so this hope of salvation, the gospel, the love God has poured out on us through Jesus is the only power strong enough to free us from not just retaliating against our enemies, but actually doing good to those who have hurt us. Why? Because that is exactly what God has done to us and what he has poured his Holy Spirit into our hearts to join him in doing. The church shouldn't be a meeting you attend or a worship service you show up at. It is a counter-cultural community. Because we belong to the day, to the day of Christ's return, and we have a sure hope of salvation. And that sure hope of salvation ought to make a radical difference in the way we relate to church leaders, to our fellow believers, and to people who hurt us. As the glory of the sun exerts both a, a gravitational force and it sheds its light on all the planets in our solar system, the gospel of Jesus Christ should transform the most difficult human relationships. Friend, don't act like you are the center of the relational universe. God is. Recognize him, that he is, he has been, he always will be. And so when it comes to deciding this week and tonight and at two o'clock today, how are you gonna relate to the people around you? Don't start with, what do I feel like doing? What do I feel like saying? Or what do I think they deserve? Start with, what is Jesus doing in the world? What is Jesus doing in them? What is Jesus doing in me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the gift of your word. You throw some sobering and hard punches in this passage, Father. And we pray that you would help us to be a people who honor you in all our relationships and who live with you, God, at the center of our relational universe. I pray that your presence at the center and the hope of salvation we have in you at the center would be visible this week in our lives and in our witness in all our relationships but especially our attitude toward church leaders, our fellow brothers and sisters, and people who hurt us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.